Some of you may be familiar with an author named uh, Paul Tripp. He has written several books. One of the ones he wrote is a book called War of Words. Uh, and in his book, War of Words, he tells a story of living in a duplex. And in this duplex, he lived with his family in one side, and the landlady and her daughter lived in the other side of the duplex. And for a while, everything went great. They had a good relationship with each other. They were friends. You know, everything's, everything's cool. Uh, but, and even to the extent that, that Bridget, the landlady's daughter, let them borrow an extra refrigerator they had when theirs broke. So the trips are using uh, their landlady's daughter's refrigerator. And one day the trips' parents were coming into town to spend a week for them, and so they went out and they bought a lot of food and they stocked up and they were getting ready for their parents' visit. Well, about the time that this was happening, Bridget, for some unknown reason, had started getting very angry with the trips. Uh, they didn't really know what had happened, but she had begun to be very rude to them. Uh, she had begun to be rude to their children, even yelling at their children, making false accusations against their children. And she would play her music so loudly at night that it would keep their kids awake. And so here are the trips, this deteriorating relationship with their landlady's daughter. They've got the refrigerator stocked up. Their parents are coming into town. And suddenly Bridget busts into their house and says, I want my refrigerator back. And they're like, well, we, we just bought all this food. Um, our parents are in town. Can we bring it back to you next week? And she said, no, I want it back today by 5 o'clock. Well, is yours broken? No, but I, I want you to bring it back today by 5 o'clock. It was hot. Their house wasn't air-conditioned. They had nothing to do with all this food. Now, put yourself in their shoes for a minute. If this was you, what would you do? Uh, what, would you what would you say? What would you think? I probably would have said something along the lines of, lady, you are crazy and you can take that refrigerator, which point Susan would have said, Justin, um, you, you're, you're a preacher, remember? Okay, yeah, and that's supposed to be just on Sunday. Um, what, what, would you, what would you do? What would you say? What, what would you want to say? Now, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, ask yourself the question, what would the Bible have you to say in that situation? What would Jesus have you to say in that situation? And in the thousand, thousands of other situations like that that we find ourselves in. All right, to answer that, we're going to look at 1 Peter. So 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. This is God's word. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles... To abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme are to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, 
Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Would you pray with me? Father, this is your word that you have given to us, preserved for us, and we pray now that uh, you would speak to us through it, that you would enable me to, to speak clearly uh, and accurately, uh, and that you would equip us and challenge us and build us up in the faith today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is an interesting passage, right? Uh, not only is it going to answer our question, which we laid out at the beginning, but it's also going to talk about how we deal with people in authority over us, uh, whether that's somebody we work for, whether that's the president, whoever that might be. It's an interesting passage. But in order to get there, I think we need to start in verse 16. I think this is sort of the hinge of working through all this. Look back at verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. The first thing I want to see here is that Peter calls us, uh, as believers in Jesus Christ, to live as people who are free. Now, as Americans, we like the sound of that, right? We, we just celebrated uh, freedom on Independence Day. We're a nation that's all about freedom. Free to do what we want to do, free to travel where we want to travel, free to vote for whom we want to vote to, free to not vote if we don't want to vote. We, we resent people telling us what to do, okay? Especially in South Carolina. We don't, we don't like people telling us what to do. We don't like you telling us we have to wear a seatbelt or wear a motorcycle helmet or a bicycle helmet. Uh, we can shoot off a nuclear bomb on the 4th of July if we want to. Uh, don't, don't restrict us in any way. We, we want to be free. If I want to do it, uh, and it doesn't hurt anybody, I ought to be able to do it. Uh, freedom in our culture is also often just pictured as this freedom from rules in general, uh, especially religious or moral rules. Uh, a, a few years back, several years ago now, you, you may remember there's a movie called Pleasantville, and it was basically about this 1950s traditional town, kind of family value sort of place, and it was boring and dull. And what happened as 
people threw off the restraints of those traditional values, traditional sexuality, all these things, the film began to become colorized, if you remember this. So it's kind of like every time somebody broke one of the rules, what the message that was being communicated was, you're really finding life when you do that. And the more you throw off those traditional restraints, the more color your life is actually going to have. Do what feels good. Go where you, wherever your desires lead you. That's where, you're find, that's where you'll find freedom. Don't let the chains of religion enslave you. All right? And so we kind of have this attitude of, well, there are no rules, and rules just restrict me. And you know the old outback saying, no rules, just right. Right, which is why I haven't paid there in 10 years. Uh, I just said, we said, uh, and they said, thank you for pointing out the absurdity of our advertising campaign. Um, but, but nobody really believes that at the end of the day. There really are rules. There really are absolutes. There's no such thing as not having rules, and there's no such thing as not having a master. Uh, you all know the, the Bob Dylan quote, you've you got to serve somebody. And that's really biblical. Paul says in Romans 1 that, that all people have worshipped and served created things, worshipped and served created things, instead of worshipping and serving the Creator. Uh, Jesus says that anybody who sins is actually a slave to sin. And so for all of our talk about being free people, what the, Bible, the picture of the Bible paints is very different. It says that we are all actually slaves to sin we're all born as slaves to sin it's not just the alcoholic or the drug addict who are addicts we're all addicted to sin we're all in bondage to something uh, whether it's fear of what others think about us whether it's uh, an endless pursuit of pleasure and comfort we're all in bondage to something for every one of us there's some master that we serve there's something that we fear losing. There's something that motivates us. There's something that controls our lives. Uh, Rebecca Piper put it this way, whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. We do not control ourselves. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. What controls you? What controls you? Um, let me tell you one of, one of the things that, one of my idols, one of the things that, has, that controlled me. Uh, when we lived in Boone and we already had two children and, and Jack was on the way and we lived in a very small house, but it had a, a basement that was basically the same size as the upstairs. And so we wanted to finish this basement. And the goal was to finish the basement by the due date, which was December 6th. And so we were doing this ourselves with a lot of help from, from college students. I was doing campus ministry and uh, from friends as well. And so the result was that I stayed up late. I neglected my family. I neglected my time in the Word and in prayer. I made a whole lot of people who had volunteered to help stay up late and neglect their families as well. Um, it, it got to the point where, he doesn't remember this, but Will would stand at the top of the stairs going down in the basement with a coat saying, Daddy? Because he knew that that would get me up. Like, he lives down there, and he comes up and gets one of these every once in a while. Um, so that, but that just for, for several months 
that just controlled my life and drove my life. I've got to accomplish this and everything else is going to fall in line behind that. We all have things like that. I've got to have this. I've got to get this done or else. And it shapes everything in our lives. See, the reality is, is that none of us are really free, but Peter tells us to live as free people. We're not free, but Peter tells us to live as free people. When the Bible and our experience show that we're not free, that we're actually slaves. So how does a slave then live as a free person? The better question might be, how does a slave become a free person? A slave doesn't become a free person by somehow becoming a person who doesn't have a master. A slave becomes a free person by having the right master. The right master, according to the Bible, is God. The one who made us. The one who designs us. The one who knows why he made us and what we're designed to do and how we're designed to work. The one who has a claim of ownership on our lives. He's the one we're submit to. But that just brings us to another question. How does somebody who is in slavery and bondage to sin then become a servant of God instead? And you can't just flip that switch. How does, how does this change take place? Uh, John chapter 8, Jesus says, the truth will set you free. And then he goes on to say that if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Now, Paul in Romans 6 says that our old self was crucified with Christ so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Uh, Peter here in verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Earlier in chapter 1, he says we were ransomed from our former futile way of life by the blood of Jesus. Though he's been called out of darkness and into light. How do slaves to sin become servants, slaves and servants to God? It's only through the work of Jesus Christ. It's only through Jesus who is the great emancipator. Uh, Jesus is the one that you can imagine us locked in our prison of sin and, and service to that. He's the only one with the key to unlock that door and release us. But he doesn't just free us in to kind of go, all right, you're no longer in bondage. Now I can do whatever you want to do. Because that would just put you right back into bondage all over again. Instead, Jesus delivers us from bondage to these old masters, and he delivers us to a new master. He delivers us to a good master. He delivers us to the one who made us and designed us and knows why he made us. Jesus frees us to serve the Father who loves us. That's freedom. Freedom is found in, in living to please the Father, in, in living like we're actually designed to live. Uh, you all are free when you leave here. You probably have cars that say unleaded only. You are free to go to the gas station and put diesel in there if you want to. Right? You're free to do that. You're free to go to QT and fill your car up with slushies for all I care, okay? Just, just don't do it to mine. You're welcome to do that, but your car is only going to be free if you actually put the type of gas in it that it's designed to run on. That's when your car finds freedom. 
Uh, think about a fish in a bowl. It might say, this is awful confining. I really, like, would, I really would like to be out on the table. Okay? Then I would be free. Well, no, you'd actually be dead. <laughs> that's what you would be then if you jumped out of the bowl. But that's what we're like. We're like this fish trying to get out of the water into freedom, and we only find death there. Freedom is found in doing what we're designed to do and living as we're designed to live, and that's actually in submission to the one who made us. Now, from this, you, you ought to start to see that the only person who can truly live freely is the one who has been set free by the Lord Jesus Christ in order that we might now be able to serve the one who has freed us from sin. You know, everybody in here, as far as I know, is free. Uh, I don't think we have anybody out on parole this morning for Sunday services. Um, so we're all, in that sense, we're all free people. But I imagine that there are many of us that even though we're physically free, we're in bondage to something. Uh, in bondage to our fears, to our insecurities, to sins that we struggle with that we can't overcome. We're free to all appearances, but we're actually living lives in bondage. And there are people who are in prison who are actually much more free than some of us are. Uh, I, was, I was watching a movie recently, and I, I won't tell you the name, so I won't give anything away, because I get accused of doing that for some reason. Um, <laughs> but but this, this guy is, is an alcoholic, and he finally has to face the consequences of his sin, and he winds up in prison after a long series of events. And he's telling his story to some people, and they're saying, don't you hate being in here after everything? You know? and, and he says, in effect, I'm more free right now than I've ever been in my life. I'm more free right now than I've ever been in my life. And, and that's, that's the power of the gospel. That, that that is the only thing that actually sets us free. Now, Peter says, so, let, me, let me recap. Peter says, live as people who are free, but living as people who are free means living as servants to God, to the one who designed us and made us. Now, what do we do as these servants of God? So we've been free, we've been freed to be a servant of God, but now what do we do as a servant of God? We're freed, and this is our second point, so that we can join the resistance, okay? We're freed so that we can join the resistance. Now, where am I getting this? Look in, look in verse 16 again. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And now go back up to verse 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We're freed to join the resistance. Well, who is it that we're resisting? Who are we called to fight against? Well, to a certain extent, Peter's calling us here to fight against ourselves because there's this remaining sinful corruption in us that tries to invite us and entice us away to do evil. Peter recognizes here the, the painful reality that the Christian life is not easy, that the passions of my flesh wage war against my soul. The passions of your flesh wage war against your soul. 
those fleshly lusts, what the NIV refers to as the sinful desires, those didn't just dry up and blow away the day that you became a believer in Jesus Christ. Satan appeals to these desires of the flesh through the corrupt world in which we still live. And so we find ourselves more often than we like doing things that we know we shouldn't be doing. We find ourselves giving in to our desires. And Peter is urging us to resist, to abstain, to not give in to those desires. When we lived in Boone, we used to do a lot of hiking. And, you know, you're up in the mountains and you've been hiking all day. You didn't bring enough water. And you come across that cool, refreshing mountain stream. But you can't drink it, right? Because of Giardia, or however you say that. Um, don't say that right. Okay, good. Um, but but our, our dog at the time didn't understand that, right? Okay. So the dog would always suffer, suffer the consequences of, of drinking those from those mountain streams. We knew better. But it looks very enticing. It looked like I'm really thirsty, and that would really quench my thirst right now. And Peter is saying to us, look, these, these desires you have, they do wage war against your soul. They do look very enticing. They do look like they would quench your thirst. But they won't. And you have to abstain. And you have to avoid them. You're free. You don't have to do that anymore. So fight. Resist. Don't head back down that road towards slavery. Oh, that's not easy, is it? I, in, in fact, I'd say that the Christian life isn't easy. And if you think the Christian life is easy, it probably means you're not a Christian, honestly, because it's just not an easy thing. Becoming a Christian in some ways actually makes things harder for us because it's like we've been kind of floating downstream with everybody else. You know, we're on our rafting trip going the same direction with everybody else. And then suddenly we got to start paddling back upstream the other way. And everybody's going by with their floats and their coolers and they're having a good time. And we're trying to go in the opposite direction. And we think, man, it would be a lot easier just to float. It would be a lot easier just to, just to go that way. Remember the Israelites. It would be, wouldn't it be better if we were back in Egypt, back in slavery? Things were so much better then. And Peter's saying, no, abstain from those desires. Resist. Resist. So he tells us to fight our evil desires, but he also tells us that part of the resistance is by, it involves keeping our conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Now, notice here that he assumes that Christians are going to, to be trying to live out their faith among people who don't believe, among people who will actually call them evildoers, among people who will slander Christians. And Peter tells us the best way to live among people like this is not to engage in some kind of constant verbal battle with them. It's not to try to maneuver politically so that we can get the upper hand in the culture wars. He doesn't even say anything here about doing evangelism. Peter says that if we keep our conduct among non-believers honorable, they will see our good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. He says that by doing good, we will silence the ignorance of foolish people. Uh, later in chapter 3, he's going to tell wives who are married to unbelieving husbands 
Be subject to your husband so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. Now, the lesson today is not don't tell people about Jesus, okay? Like, what did you learn in church? Well, preachers said don't tell anybody about Jesus. No, that's, that's not the point. But I think we greatly underestimate the power of our lives. Uh, early Christians were frequently ac accused of crimes, of practicing murder, of incest, uh, of, of cannibalism in their meetings. They were accused of disturbing the good order of the Roman Empire. They were accused of following this crazy superstition and dangerous, novel and dangerous superstition. How, how were they to handle that? What were they supposed to do? Peter said, you do the right thing. You live the right way because your very conduct has the power to actually silence this foolishness. Your conduct makes the very gospel of Jesus, Jesus Christ attractive and may lead people to Christ. And even for those who continue to refuse the gospel, to continue to, 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 to reject the gospel, they will, there will come a day when they will have to bow before God and acknowledge before him to God's glory that his servants were faithful in what they did and how they lived. Now let me, just a couple of quick applications off of this. Um, do you and I, have, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, do you have any significant relationships with, with people who aren't believers? Or have you sort of retreated into the Christian subculture where everything is comfortable and safe? How many, how many friends do you have that, that aren't believers? Are you involved anywhere in Spartanburg where you're not comfortable? Where you're not, where it's, where it's kind of, it feels weird to be there. Are you involved anywhere where it's not comfortable? Uh, and then secondly, as, as we live out our Christian lives before the world, are we living in honorable ways? Do we view our lives and our possessions, um, everything, the things that we do, our very purpose for living in a different way from people who don't believe? Are we, are we really swimming upstream or do we find it easier just to float downstream with the unbelief around us. Well, Peter calls us to live as people who are free. But living as people who are free means living as a servant of God. And living as a servant of God means involve, involves joining the resistance. But joining the resistance doesn't involve fighting our neighbors. It involves fighting the sinful passions of our own souls and living such good and different lives among our neighbors that they're compelled to take notice and ask, what, why do you live like that? What is it that you believe that makes you so different? Now, this all sounds good and great, right? I mean, it, it, it may not be easy, right? And I, I'll be the first to say it's not easy. But at least you're kind of reading this and you're thinking, that's not easy, but that's reasonable. But then Peter tells us something about the resistance that actually sounds very unreasonable. He tells us that we aid the resistance by submitting. He tells us to live as free men, but that means serving God. But then he says we, one of the ways we serve God, look in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake 
to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Uh, the NIV puts it to every authority instituted among men, to the king and to his governors. He even goes so far as to tell servants or to tell slaves to submit to their masters. And not only to those who are good and gentle, but actually to those who are harsh as well. Well, let me put this in a little bit of a context. Who's, who's Peter talking to? He's talking to people who he called, I remember this from earlier in the book, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Peter is telling these folks, you're a privileged people. And I want you to live in a very underprivileged way. You're royalty. But I actually want you to live as if you were a servant. Uh, as believers in Jesus Christ, you and I are called to show proper respect to all people. Proper respect to all people. Whether it's the person you bought breakfast, from Hardy, uh, breakfast at from Hardy's this morning, whether it's a person who checks you out at Walmart, whether it's the, the person across the street, that neighbor across the street, whether it's the person you work for, somebody you bump into at the grocery store, all people are made in God's image. All people are made in God's image, and we should treat them as those who are made in God's image. But in particular, Peter says that Christians are to show proper respect to the governing authorities by submitting to them. Even, now think about where these guys were, even as Christians living in a pagan society, even as those who were living under evil rulers like Nero, you had this thing of like crucifying Christians upside down, burning people. Um, we could get like really sidetracked right here um, about the, the proper role of, of, of Christians in government and our society and that society and all this. Let me, let me say this real quick. Uh, John Calvin makes the point that as citizens that we are to obey evil rulers and possibly suffer, but there may be times when lesser authorities ought to revolt. Uh, in other words, he, his point was citizens don't take things into your own hands, but somehow, sometimes some rulers have to take things into their own hands and then lead revolt. Now, I, I can't draw you a flow chart, uh, and for anybody listening, I'm not advocating any revolts. Um, <laughs> But I think I can tell you from this as a general rule that Christians are called to submit even to rulers who are evil, even to an evil ruler. Now, why is that? Why is that? Why should I do that? Well, if, if you were to look later in the book of Titus, I can't remember if it's chapter 2 or 3, but Titus, Titus tells us that we treat an evil ruler well even when they don't deserve it because God treated us well when we didn't deserve it. That it's the gospel that leads us to do these things. And here Peter says when we submit, we actually serve the Lord and his purposes. We demonstrate the gospel and we can put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, obviously, we don't live in a Roman culture with an emperor. And we live in a country where we're free to disagree uh, with those in authority over us. 
But there's a right way to disagree and there's a, there's a wrong way to disagree. And we need to, to practice, especially as Christians, the art of being gracious to those with whom we disagree while we also honor the ones with whom we disagree. Uh, look at verse 17. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. I, I heard this uh, story recently from another pastor, and I, I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but I think it makes the point. Um, several years ago, Hillary Clinton was invited to a Bible study by an evangelical Christian. And she was shocked. And what she told the person who invited her was, I thought Christians hated me. I thought Christians hated me. And, and do you see how it's fine to disagree with her politics, but as a believer in Jesus Christ, there's a way that you disagree, that we shouldn't be communicating with somebody, we hate you. We hate you. We need to, to honor those in authority over us because Christians don't use the same weapons that the world uses. We don't demand our rights. We do suffer and go the second mile. We wash others' feet. But Peter even points out here that as a slave, as a servant, you're in a good position to demonstrate the gospel. Now, he's not given a treatise on slavery and whether it should exist or not or anything like that. As much as he's just saying, look, if you find yourself in that position, then you submit to your master, even to the bad ones. Because he's not really your master. God is. God is. And if you show your earthly master that you're going to treat him with respect no matter how he treats you, you're a living demonstration of the gospel to that person. You show that person that this is real and that you serve the Lord. Now, maybe that's not very relevant to us today. Let me, let, me, let me read this how we might put it in today's language. Employees, submit to your employers with all respect, not only to those who are kind and considerate, but to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you show up for work late and get yelled at and endure it? But if your employer belittles you, when you do good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. Let me get back to the original question. What would you do if the landlady's daughter showed up and demanded the refrigerator back? Here's what the trips did. They took the food out, they set it on the table, they took the refrigerator back and, and put it in her garage. Uh, but he said he was itching to go over and, and give her a piece of his mind. That afternoon, his, his wife made some cinnamon rolls and said, why don't you take these over to Bridget? <laughs> yeah. Um, and then she said, God tells us to overcome evil with good and that we should look for ways to do good to those who mistreat us. Why don't you write her a note telling her we love her and want to have a good relationship with her? And this is what Paul Tripp writes. That was one of the hardest notes I have ever written. I was filled with my sense of being wronged. I wanted Bridget to hurt the way she had hurt us. 
But by the grace of God, I did what Luella suggested. I took the note and the plate of warm rolls over. Our landlady answered the door. When I told her that the rolls were for her daughter, she told me that I must be some kind of nut. I told her that I thought this was what God wanted me to do. Later that year, he says that Bridget came to their door crying, and this is what she said. I know that I've been impossible to live with and that I've done many things to make your life difficult. I don't know why I've been so mean, so angry. I've alienated my family and all my close friends. You're the only two people that I know for sure love me. I've come here because I need your help. He said that afternoon they were able to talk to her about Jesus Christ and the help that only he can give. Are you and I willing to suffer unjustly at times and to meekly remain silent and even to do good to those who mistreat us in trusting ourselves to God himself? Now, I'll tell you, moment of personal honesty, <laughs> this is one of the hardest things for me to do, and my wife would attest to that. Like, if you push me, I want to push you back. I mean, that's, that's, that's the kind of what, that's how I was raised, I guess. Um, but it's not what Jesus calls us to. It's not what Jesus calls us to. He calls us to this. Why, why should we do this? Because it's what Jesus did. Look, and we'll wrap up here. Verse 21. Far to this you have been called. Far to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We don't live as a persecuted minority in this country where we have some power. Uh, perhaps this message would resonate more deeply if we were living in a Muslim majority country where the rulers hated and persecuted Christians. But I do think if we were more mindful of our Savior's suffering, we would see as silly some of the situations in which we demand our rights. If we were really to walk in Jesus' footsteps, we would assert our rights a lot less. We'd probably keep our mouths shut a lot more. We would not bow up on people quite as much as we're prone to do that. And we would actually entrust ourselves to the King who judges justly. I mean, think of the times when we've kind of pushed back or gotten back in somebody's face. Just, just in, when, when, when the only suffering we were undergoing was, was hurt feelings or hurt pride. When our Savior refused to retaliate when insults were being hurled at him, when he was headed to the cross. And when I think about that, I have to ask myself, am I finding my identity as a humble child of the King? Or am I trying to find my identity by asserting to my rights and trying to prove I am somebody and you can't treat me like that? Do we really know what it means to lay down our rights? We lay down our rights because we follow a Savior who did so. We lay down our rights because the one who saved us calls us to do it. Verse 24, 
He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Lord Jesus, because you have saved me, I will follow in your footsteps. Because you were silent before your oppressors, I will learn to be silent. Because you didn't cling to your position or stand up for yourself even, I will learn what it means to be meek. It's an amazing passage, isn't it? Peter calls us to live as people who are free. But then he shows us that living as people who are free actually means living as servants. It involves laying down our rights, laying down our privileges, ascending to, submitting to injustice at times, and fixing our eyes on Jesus, our suffering Savior, and walking in his footsteps. Let me pray for us. Father, none of this is, is very easy. It, it really does rub against our grain to, to try to, to stand up and, and push back. And yet, if Jesus had pushed back, uh, we'd still be lost and in our sins. Jesus submitted to injustice. Jesus submitted to insults and bore our sins and his body on the tree so that we might be freed free to serve you, free to love other people, free to love even our enemies. God, we confess that we don't do this very well. Uh, we pray for much grace that we might live here as you call us to live, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.